Good morning, church. My name is Brett. Uh, thank you very much for your giving. It's good to see you today. I happen to be the overseer for all that we do here in the metropolitan area, and it's great to be with you. I want to welcome our guests, especially those who are with us for the first time. Thank you. Uh, we are happy you're here <clears throat> and grateful that you chose to make us your church home for about an hour today. Welcome. Um, we're going to talk about restoration today. If you'll turn with me over to the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 58, verse 12. Will you please stand as we read the word? Isaiah 58, verse 12. Isaiah is prophesying, and he says, Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations, and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets in which to dwell. Lord, help us as we study your word today. And help us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Christ's name, amen. amen. You may be seated. Isaiah is working really hard to make sure that the people to whom he has been sent are readied for God. He, he served over four kings, 60 years of prophetic ministry from about 740 B.C. to 680 B.C. He served under Uzziah. That was his first um, prophetic ministry as a king. Uzziah was a king that reigned 51 years. He was a really good king. Did not have as good of an ending as he had a beginning or middle, but he was a good man. Uzziah had a son named Jotham who was fairly good. Ahaz, Jotham's son, was so-so, not real great. And then Hezekiah was a good king. In fact, to that point, he said he was the best king Hezekiah was in all of Judah. Didn't mean he was better than David because David was over all of Israel. But Uzziah's, uh, excuse me, Isaiah's prophetic ministry spanned 60 years. And, and generally speaking, he was, he was trying to help the people of God. Not so much the monarchy, though he did prophesy to the monarchy from time to time. He was trying to help the people of God to know what it meant to, to worship with integrity to make sure they were honest and not living a hypocritical life. And he starts off in chapter 1. God speaks to him, and through him, he says to the people of Israel, stop bringing me sacrifices. Basically, stop doing your religious activity. I'm tired of it. I don't want the blood of goats and, and, and cattle anymore and sheep. Stop it. Now, God had prescribed that he be worshipped with these things. So when God says stop doing what he said do, you know he's mad at somebody. And the reason he said stop was not because they weren't doing right in terms of bringing the offering. It's that they weren't doing right when they weren't bringing the offering. So Sunday was beautiful. Everybody looked pretty. Bow ties. <laughs> Beautifully presented. Makeup right, hair right. Children obeyed. Everything looked perfect. But on Monday... They were treating their workers bad. They weren't honoring their spouses. They weren't clothing the naked. They weren't giving food to the hungry. They weren't providing shelter for those who were homeless. They were doing nothing Monday through Saturday. But Sunday, whoo-hoo, well, for them, Saturday. Their holy day seemed to be the time when they could put on all the airs and make sure that they were as right as they could, could be. And everybody thought they were, except God could see. So God said, stop doing religion without having integrity throughout the week that somehow allows you to build a foundation where your religion matters. 
Stop it. Now, people will say that religion is really not what Christianity is about. It's about relationship. Partially true. It is about relationship. That is primary. That is the foundation of all we do, a relationship with God. But our religion helps our relationship. Meaning having regular Sunday morning services helps you understand who God is better. You don't have them, you don't know them as well. Small groups, which are religious activities, help you understand who God is better through people and how you can connect and relate. That helps you. A regular prayer life, devotional life. These are religious practices. When put into play, help you be better. The problem with religion is this. When religion replaces your relationship, you're in trouble. When religion replaces your proper actions on a regular basis, when you use that as a sacrifice, rather than the sacrifice of obedience, you got issues. And this is what the people of Israel were going through. They weren't living right, but they thought if they just went to church and they tithed. God would go ahead and say, doesn't matter what you do Monday through Saturday, Sunday's good. Doesn't work like that. And Isaiah was trying to get him to see all of it ties together. And in this chapter, chapter 58, it's kind of a continuance from chapter 1. That's all the way through the book. Chapter 58, he starts with the idea of fasting. A wonderful topic that you love to hear about, I know. The people can't figure out why in the world they fast and God doesn't see. Doesn't pay any notice. He says, we work really hard to try to present ourselves to you as humble folks, denying ourselves our food so we can seek you better. God says, yeah, but you missed the point. You fast and you do this religious activity, but you drive hard your workers all week long. You make them work 80 hours and you don't give them any overtime and you you, 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 you don't give them lunch, and it, you, you, it's just terrible. And there are people who are hungry, and you don't feed them, and there are people who are naked, and you don't even think about giving them clothes. <laughs> Yet you think if you fast, it's going to be okay with me. There's got to be some connection again. And he says, this is the kind of fast that I choose, that you would provide for those who don't have. You would be to those what they need. You would sacrifice yourself for other people's benefit on a regular basis. And it's not just when you fast. It's that you do it as a lifestyle so that your fasting is accentuating what you're doing. That actually your relationship with God is coming through all of your activity that's going on throughout the week. And it accentuates your, con your connection with God as you fast. Let me tell you what fasting is for. Because most people don't, don't, uh, don't fast. Um, it, it's, it's, in fact... Most people think if you fast, you're like a saint. You're, you're, you're at a different level. Most Christians think going to church and, and giving an offering every once in a while is, is high-level stuff. If you go to a small group, you're a serious Christian. If you do that and go to a men's or women's meeting, boy, you're like real holy. And if you fast, you're up there with Mother Teresa People don't want to give up their food. But these people were doing that, thinking that they could somehow get a pat on the back from God, and the rest of their life really didn't matter. And God said, no, fasting is good if you do it right. If you incorporate the things of, of continuity about what it means to care for people while you fast, it's beautiful. Fasting has nothing to do with being akin to a hunger strike. You're not saying, God, I'm going to give up this food, and you better do it, or I'm not going to eat until... I need you to serve me right now, fix this, and I won't eat until it's fixed. That's not what fasting is about. Fasting is saying this, 
I need you more than my necessary food. I'm presenting myself to you as a sacrifice, and I'm giving up what I need to get what I can't live without. I need you, oh God. I can't live without you. I'm giving up my food because I need you more. When you put yourself in that kind of posture, it says to God, huh, okay, let's see if we can, we can begin to navigate through your soul a little bit easier. Now you, you become more sensitized to his spirit. You hear things better. You understand things more down on the inside. He's able to speak to you more clearly. You, you understand his voice, his leanings, his nudgings. Fasting puts you in a position where you can receive from him more easily. And God says when you do it like I say, incorporating obedience throughout the week and throughout your life, he said your healing will appear quickly. If you've got problems in your life, they'll begin to be adjusted toward right. Your light will appear in the darkness like the dawn. It's not a dimmer on it. It'll show up like the sun until the midday. Everything will get the way it should be if you fast right in, accor in accordance with all the obedience that you need to, to employ. And you will rebuild ancient ruins, raise up age-old foundations, be restorers, repairers of the breach, and restorers of the streets in which to dwell. Now, we think Isaiah was actually prophesying when he got to this part. He may have been just clarifying and giving information on the others, but on this part, we think he was prophesying because he was living in a city that didn't need repair. Jerusalem had not been attacked and destroyed. It would be almost 100 years later, 120 years later, when the Babylonians would come and destroy the city, burn its gates with fire, take the, the temple apart brick by brick, and destroy the walls, making the city uninhabitable. And so we think Isaiah realized something's going to happen to your grandchildren. And they are going to be called the restorer of the places in which to dwell. They're going to be the fixers of things that are wrong. They're going to begin to restore the things that have been destroyed. That's what your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren are going to be. But your fasting will help them do that. We fast prescribed about 11 times in this church a year, 11 days. Five days at the beginning of January in, in, in uh, cooperation and unity with our Every Nation World, which is the organization under which we find our church home as a congregation. We have 500 churches around the world. We all fast together for the things that are most important to our progress at the beginning of the year. Then we fast three days at Easter, before Easter, uh, Resurrection Sunday, and then we fast three days during our anniversary month. That's six, three, you get two and three, six and five, 11 days a year. Um, and we want that to be a primer. We don't want those to be the only time that you offer up your food to God. We want those to be primers so that your fasting begins to be almost a way of life, a, 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 a thing that you do on a regular basis to sensitize yourself to God and realize I'm not enough to fix the problems that are in this world. I need more of you in my life. And I'm not enough to fix the problems in me. I can go ahead and read as much as I, I can pray. I, can, I don't know. If you, haven't, if you haven't been at the place which I'm about to explain, you haven't lived long enough yet. Where you do everything right. You read your Bible every day. You pray. You go to church. You tithe. You're in men's groups, women's groups. You're giving in grace loves. You're going out and serving the community. You're doing everything right. But somehow you can't find answers to your problems. That God wants you to be reduced just a little bit more. That the equation works like this. 
You must decrease as he must increase. This is what John the Baptist understood to be so. If God was going to do what he wanted to do in his generation, that he had to become less that Jesus might become more. John had the biggest ministry in the last 400 years. People were coming to hear what he had to say in the desert. I need air conditioning in the summer and heat in the winter for you to show up. (laughs) They were coming in the desert in 110 degrees with no water to hear what this man had to say. Ah, Maybe a little water. The Jordan River. Dirty. Nobody drank from it. You only got baptized in it. This guy was special. And he said, I'm giving it all up for him. Decrease is the way you get increase of God in your life. And everything you do might be going really right. You might be right on point with obedience, but you're not seeing the results. This is where you begin to incorporate. Lord, how can I become less that you might become more? I'm not going to stop what I'm doing, but I need something different to happen. I need you to fix me better. I don't just need to obey better. I need to be better. Help me. And fasting helps with that. It lets you understand what you are not. It helps you realize what you can't do. And it makes you dependent on on him who can. Here we have Isaiah telling the people, if you fast, not only will it help you in your generation, but four down the line. You fast now? Those who come from among you will rebuild. He's prophesying about what's going to happen 100 to 120 years later. Those from among you will come and rebuild. Your sacrifice could have generational impact. It's not just about how we do today. We are building for the year 2440. Are you listening to me? I didn't make that number out of the air. I'm serious. 100, 210 years later, that's 220 years later. That's what we're building for. I think God might be glorified. You might say, well, wait, 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 wait. Didn't Jesus come back before then? I hope so. I really do. I hope he come back tomorrow. That's what I hope. I'd like to wind this thing up, go to heaven with my wife and children. It'd be really great. Just great, great, great. I have no confidence that's going to happen, though. None. I think I'm going to get up tomorrow with my alarm clock. Mad again. <laughs> you said so. What's that mean? Uh, but we got a plan he said don't worry about the day or time just occupy until I come figure out how to expand my kingdom until I show up and don't stop so that's what we're doing with church planting and all the other things we are advancing his kingdom until he decides to show up so that when he does show up we will be found fruitful productive and busy with good stuff but our fasting can have an impact for four, five, six generations down the road. Amen. Our commitment can have an impact for generations down the road. Let's start with what it means to fix some ruins, rebuild some stuff. Boy, in our society, there's a lot of stuff that's broken, isn't it? Yeah. Things that just aren't right. And let me say that God hasn't had a new plan. What he thought about when he thought about creating man, he's still thinking about Adam and Eve were in the garden. Everything was perfect. They could not have had a more perfect environment in which to live. God made it perfect. We don't even know what perfect is. Our version of perfect is broken. 
Ours is just less bad. It's not really horrible. Theirs, unbelievably great. And they blew it. They decided to eat of the tree from which they were not to eat. And they served another master. As a result, God said, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to let the seed of the woman come. He'll crush the serpent's head, but his heel will be bruised. And when that happens, all things will be back the way they should. I don't know what it looks like, but I know that it's a a lot different than what we've got now. And God hasn't had a different plan from the beginning in Genesis to the end in Revelation. He has one plan to try to get us back to be what he thought about creating man when he thought about creating man. That's what his plan is. So he's been in the fix-it mode the entire time, repairing things that are broken, helping people who are broken, helping marriages, families, businesses, governments that are broken, churches that are broken, fixing them, bringing the redemptive benefit of the cross to people who do not know anything about what it looks like to be most right. God loves you enough to bring remedy to your life. And it's more than just hearing what is right. It's beginning to employ what is right so that when the storm comes, your house will be standing. You may have lost some shingles. Shutters may have been blown off. Doors and windows broken. But you are dry. This is the way God said we need to build in a world that's broken. There's nothing about this that's going to shield us from tribulation and trials. In fact, Jesus said this. I wish he hadn't. In this world, you will have tribulation. Don't prophesy, Jesus, please. You will have tribulation. But he didn't stop there. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. You make it through tribulation. This world is broken. God's here to fix it. He says of Isaiah, you are going to rebuild ancient ruins. Remember, if he's talking about the the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., there's nothing left, just rocks and rubble. It's a mess. So there are many things that need to be fixed, and I'm going to talk about two under each of the headings. Here we have rebuilding ancient ruins. We're going to talk about what it means to restore the family and restore the church. If we can restore the family, see the family restored, and see the church restored, we can go a long way toward, toward providing an architecture that allows people to live best. God did not create the church first. He created the family first. A man and a woman beginning to propagate by producing after their kind and discipling them, loving them, leading them into all that was right, guiding them in the right way, not manipulative, not harsh, understanding what authority looked like in the most proper way to exercise it. Not always showing their stripes, but being examples of what right looked like. This is what a family ought to be. And God wants to create that because families are the backbone of our society. When we find a new kind of architecture that does not agree with the Bible, we're in trouble. I'll say that again because I didn't like the amen that I got. (laughs) When we find a new kind of architecture that does not agree with the Bible, we are in trouble. Thank you. We need to agree with what Scripture has to say about what family is. Now, because the world is so broken, sometimes the family gets broken. Uh, Somebody succumbs to an illness. uh, Divorce happens. Things go awry. But our God is still on the throne. And he is still in the process of trying to fix. There are very few things about my life that you look at now that would tell you that I came from the family from which I came. 
My mother and father divorced when I was 13 in 1974. And the, the relationship they had while I was growing up, let's just say it wasn't, it wasn't pleasant. And I had to do more than I needed to do as a, as a young man to try to figure out how to keep peace in my house. My dad didn't know how to be a good dad. He loved me. My mom didn't know how to, to be as, as, as discipling-oriented as she could. She loved me. They both gave me what they had, but they couldn't give me what they didn't. And they didn't know God very well. They knew him a little. She did. My mother, my dad never came to church with us ever. And everything about my life said I should be a stat someplace on the front page of the Washington Post. But I'm not. Because God intervened. He saw a broken environment. He saw something messed up. And he said, I'm going to fix him. I'm going to help him. And because he helped me, my sister got saved, my brother got saved, their kids are saved, my grandfather got saved, my mama got saved, my daddy got saved. Everybody in my immediate family got right with God. Everybody. Because God came to fix it. And because of his goodness to me, forgive me for touching my mic, he's restored something that was in ruins when I was growing up. And now you look at my family, and I'm, I'm, I'm the weight. I'm, I'm, I'm the one who's the worst in my household. I'm the problem. My wife is just so great. But she must have done something to get saddled with me. But she raised our kids so wonderfully. She homeschooled them for 23 years. And I got four of them in ministry, four of them out of the seven who are in church and love this place. All they want to do is serve. We were able to rebuild ancient ruins in our house. Secondly, the church. The church is the institution that is called, in 1 Timothy 3, the pillar and support of truth. We need to build a church, a model that looks like what church ought to be. Everybody has an idea about, uh, about what church is because many times we have wrongly presented who we are supposed to be. We haven't represented Jesus well, but we are supposed to be an outpost of heaven. Something that people can run to and find safety from the, from the world, a refuge. That's what the church is to be. And once they're in here, though we might be a refuge, and indeed we might be a hospital to fix folk that are sick relationally, sick financially, sick in terms of their relationship with God. We give them remedies for health, but we are also then to prepare them to go back out into the world and help everybody else who was as sick as they used to be. Make them now emissaries of God's goodness, ambassadors of the kingdom, so that we can impact the world. That's what the church is supposed to be in a nutshell. An outpost of heaven that begins to spread its influence to the world that others might know who he is. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we are to rebuild age-old foundations. Uh, we need to love good theology and we need to love good missiology. Missiology is the idea of what it means to go. Go on the mission field. Theology is simply the study of God. We need to love our Bible and what it says, even if it disagrees with us. If we don't like what it says, that doesn't mean we change it for our liking. It means we change in order to comply. Good theology 
This is the manual. This is the book that allows us to know how to live best. If you change the rules, then you will not get the results. You can't get the fruit that you want that is kingdom-oriented and God-glorifying with you, with, with you changing the rules about what you want your life to be. you got to comply. you got to submit and say, I'm going to obey my Bible even if it hurts me. And everything about Christianity, everything about Christianity is about pain. <laughs> you okay, my brother? <laughs> you got, got the inside. I'm being hyperbolic. I am. There are some wonderful things about Christianity, but help me a little bit. Help me a minute. What did Jesus say if you want to be my disciple? What's the first thing he said? Die! Pick up your cross and follow me. This is not about producing a rose bed of petals. A way, a pathway that's so easy and wonderful for you. This is about laying your life down for a community that doesn't know how to live. Our version of Christianity in America is a little bit skewed. It's all about God. What can you do to help me be better? Self-help, trying to become your best version of yourself. God's saying the best version of yourself is still real bad. I'm trying to kill you. And remake you into something that's useful. Because your version of you, even at its best, is bad. Pick up your cross and follow me die. Boy, this is morbid this morning. <laughs> good theology. Secondly, good missiology. What it means for us to send people out. When you go out of here, you become a missionary when you walk out these doors. Somebody who is to be an emissary of goodness for God. We need to go out thinking that we are now representatives of the kingdom. Not just people who are in need, but people who are ministering to people who are in need. Thirdly, repairers of the breach. Boy, our walls have been broken down. And we desperately need to build them up. So many areas we could talk about, but there are two that I want to talk about here. Prayer and holiness. Prayer and holiness. First, holiness. Holiness is that which is internal. It's something that really nobody can see. They can see your moral excellence if you have it. They can see how you respond. They can see your witness. But you can actually be, from the outward appearance, morally excellent and not have holiness in here. You can appear on a Sunday morning with, with just beautiful and all dressed up and, and your children are in order and, and they're all saying yes sir and no sir and, but your home could be a wreck. Nobody knows. And you could be thinking thoughts that shouldn't be thought. Holiness is that which, which allows God to approve of you in an unqualified way. He accepts you as a result of what Jesus did on the cross. You can't do anything to fix that. You can't do anything to make yourself better. He accepts you because Jesus decided to die for your sin, to wipe out every consequence that should have been yours, take it upon himself, and to impute to you his righteousness. That is the only way we are accepted before God. It has nothing to do with how good you think you are or how wonderful you think you've done. Nothing. But approval is a different thing. Approval means, I like what you're doing. That's really good. You have my affirmation there. Holiness is that which God approves. 
Holiness and, and godliness are synonyms. They are uh, the elements that allow us to be Christ-like, both in action and heart. And I want holiness to be that which we pursue. Not holier than thou that somehow makes us feel better than everybody else. Just a level of holiness that allows other people to see Jesus, not us. Prayer. Boy, your prayer life needs to increase. If we begin to build walls of holiness and pray around us, holiness will keep us from the world system. It'll, it'll save us from all of the consequences of disobedience and misdeeds. Holiness will protect you. And prayer will help you from going in the wrong direction. The kind of prayer God is looking for is a prayer that doesn't have you always talking. You're not a very good conversationalist when it comes to God. He has more words in his vocabulary than you do. He knows every language known to man. And he knows the end from the beginning. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. So when you, when you think you're uttering something that is new information to God, it is not. <laughs> Thus, it would be better for you to come into the presence of God with a listening ear rather than a moving mouth. So let's begin to think, Lord, what do you want to say to me? How do you want to communicate to me? I'm ready to hear your will. Rather than you hearing what I have to say and hopefully you liking it in such a way that you co-sign my plan, I want to hear what you have to say so that I can get on yours. That's what prayer is. It protects you directionally. These are the breaches that need to be fixed in our walls. And lastly, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. The streets were destroyed in 586 B.C. They were destroyed in that all the rubble from the walls and the houses and the buildings were now in the streets. And so the, the, the buses that picked up the kids couldn't because you had a 2,000-pound boulder in the middle of the street. Destroyed. God said, we need to fix that so that there are pathways of ingress and egress. Egress in that you send people out. They're able to go. And this is what we are doing in trying to help our community in planting churches. We just had our fourth pop-up service, preview service, with our Ward 2 church plant in Washington, D.C. this morning. Don't know how it went because it happened at 930. Haven't talked to the pastors, but they are crushing it downtown. Amen. They've already had three. and They've averaged 81 people at each service. And... 80 people knew between the three services, 25, 26, and 22. Stunning, just stunning, amazing. And salvations, two, six, and eight. So that's, when I'm talking, I can't add. I don't do very well. The, the left brain doesn't connect to the right. But that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 11. Thank you very much. See? They're crushing it. But that is an intentional egress. We're sending people out in order to touch a community that can't be touched here. But then they're also ingress, pathways to get into the city. We create opportunities for you who don't know what it means to live right, to go into our Discovering Discipleship class and understand who we are and what it means to become a disciple. If you want to know about what marriage is, Pastor J.C. and Rosa lead a fabulous ministry in our marriage class. We've had people that had divorce papers in hand come in and in eight weeks tear them up. 
You want to know how to do relationships? Go to our small groups. We create pathways to help you. We architect on-ramps for your progress. We have a fabulous youth ministry. You need your kids to get a little bit more information about what it means to, to be right so that they'll obey you? Youth ministry, children's ministry. We got 300 to 400 kids in there every week learning about Jesus. Isn't that daycare? Amen. They're being discipled in that room. Amen. 